A little positivity. Greetings, joymongers. Welcome to another episode of Joyfully You Life with Dr. Petrina Clark. Today, I am so excited and thrilled to have a very good friend, Sheila Wall, joining us for the conversation around STEM and other interesting topics. Sheila is actually an aerospace engineer for NASA, but she and I met on the tennis court through mutual friends and acquaintances. And from that very initial association, we have just established a very nice friendship and rapport. And I'm so grateful that she's spending a little bit of her time with us here today at Joyfully You Life. Welcome to the podcast, Sheila. Thanks for having me, Petrina. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. You know, when we met, I had no idea you were like a math science geek. But then after you came and helped me out with unpacking and moving into the new place, and I'd watched the precision with which you were putting those glasses in the cabinet, it all made sense. It's like, oh, she was doing that with like an engineering focus. I get it now. I get it now. Yes, I can't stop. <laughs> it's just who I am. But yes, that was a sneak preview into who I am, I guess. It was. It was. It's like one of those things where, ah, oh, it makes sense after. And the glasses were so precisely organized. It took me a while to actually want to use them because it's like, this is almost like work of art level. <laughs> so, But thank you again for coming to help out with the move. As you know, that moving stuff is a nightmare and having you and Sean and Walter come over made it fun and really helped me make some progress with that stuff. So that was fun and I appreciate you for that. Oh, you're welcome. And it was it was fun. So as we briefly chatted, there are just not a lot of African-American women. There are not a lot of women. And then there are not a lot of women of color in this aeronautical engineering space, science, technical engineering math space. So I thought it would be really cool for you just to share a bit about your journey and, and how you landed at NASA as an aerospace engineer. Okay. My journey... It may be a little unique, but I'll just try to start from the beginning and we'll just go step by step. So growing up as a child, um, I live with both my mother and my father. I'm the youngest of six children. And I thought we were doing, you know, pretty well. I thought we were like, you know, middle class or what have you. But I think now that I look back, we probably were at lower middle class, but we were still, you know, we were good, right? And it wasn't until we got bused, and I don't know if you're familiar with being bused, but so my older brothers and sisters all went to the community schools. And so we grew up and it was like predominantly Black. And then once busing was introduced, I was in the second grade. I'm the youngest of six, but there's a pretty large age gap. So three of them had already graduated from predominantly Black high schools or whatever. And then three of us got bused. And so I was the youngest and I was in the second grade. So being bus, I went to a predominantly white neighborhood and a white school. And for some people, I've heard stories where busing was good and bad. But for me, it was good because it allowed me to see outside of my bubble, a bubble that I didn't even know existed. And I was happy in my little bubble. Like it was like for real, like the janitors knew me at the school, all the teachers, every principal, everyone knew me because all my brothers and sisters went there before. Right. So I was just little wall, you know, wall being my last name. And it was a true community. So being bus, okay, I don't know these people, they don't know me or what have you. But it allowed me to 
have friendships outside of my neighborhood. And when I say friendships, then I got invited to different people's houses that didn't look like me. Their houses didn't look like mine. To me, they were huge mansions, right? And not that I put too much value on material things. It allowed me to see like, well, whoa, why don't we have this? So from that point on, I was more like, okay, if they can have it, I can have it too. And I was only in the second grade. So, and I was thinking, okay, so as school went on, what have you, I was smart, but not, I wasn't a genius, but I got everything pretty easily. And as time went on, I just remember seeing things outside of a community that we didn't have. Like we had one car and it wasn't fancy. Not that I needed a fancy car, but I wanted options, I guess. I don't know, but okay. So then once I got into high school, I was still doing pretty well. I did very well in like my math classes and all of that. And this is another thing. Although I was the youngest of six, my parents were supportive in the way that they provide shelter, food, and clothing, but they didn't push me in school. Okay. So my other brothers and sisters, well, we'll say the four above me, they did not do very well in school. And so it was, I'm the youngest and my sister above me, we are the only ones that really excel in school. So not only I didn't have really them to look at, I mean, I looked at my sister right above me, her name is Angie, and we were on a different path than my other siblings, if I can put it nicely. And my mother, my father, they did not go to college. They didn't know anything about college. So it was more just a self-driven. And I'm trying to, I really don't know where that self-drive came from, but I think it was more of, okay, if they can do it, I think I can do it too. And whatever that was, do it meant, but I just knew that I could get more of what I grew up with somehow. Yeah. So when I got to high school, what have you, I knew to take the college prep classes. How was I going to get to college? I don't know. What's the first thing I do to get to college? I really don't know. So I had some really good, and I went to public school. So it wasn't like I was in a private school. It's just like, okay, this is what you do. So I went to public schools and I had a very good guidance counselor. And so she would like say, okay, we'll fill this out, scholarships and stuff like that for school. But again, I really had no clue. So I filled out two scholarships or no. They weren't scholarships yet. They were applications. I did an application for Harvard because I was thinking like, okay, I knew I wasn't a genius, but I thought I was pretty smart. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to Harvard because, okay, that's what you would like to do. So I applied and I remember getting as far as a family visit. And I'm not sure, I, I don't, re- I'm a little old now, so I don't remember what that family visit was all about. But I remember someone coming from Harvard and sitting down with my mother and my father. And after they left, they told me there's no way we can afford it because Harvard does not provide scholarships. Oh, right. So my dreams were a little dashed a little bit. Okay, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. So I was like, well, the next best thing I do is go to Ohio State. So I had a guidance counselor who sent me a form to fill out for a scholarship and it was for a full ride. And so I filled it out with the help of my sister, not my parents now. This is with the help of my sister. This is Angie? Yes, this is Angie. Yes, so you'll probably hear more about her. So I filled it out and... I got it. At the same time as my senior year, my father also had cancer. And so my father passed away my senior year of high school. Oh, wow. Right? So it was this like, okay, but the crazy thing is that that scholarship, once I got it, I got it, like, I want to say a couple of days before he passed away. And that was the last conversation I had with my father. Like, okay, I got a scholarship, whatever. 
So I got the scholarship and I made it through Ohio State. I didn't see many people that looked like me, but I think getting bust was a savior for me because I was used to being not many brown kids in a room full of people that didn't look quite like me. Yeah. Of course, I was a little scared and nervous because I didn't know anyone else who was an engineer, not one person. And for me to be in aeronautical engineering, I don't know where I got the courage, but I was a little nervous that I couldn't do it, but I was brave enough to try for whatever reason. And I think the reason was because in my mind, I couldn't fail because, I mean, of course I could, but I wouldn't allow myself. I had to survive. It was survival for me. It wasn't more like, oh, great, this is what I want to be. It was like, listen, if you do not make this degree, in my mind, you will be poor the rest of your life. And that could not happen. So I think that was the drive. Like, I didn't have a backup plan. So it was like, either you're going to be this engineer or in my mind, what? I don't know. I love this idea though, Sheila. I just want to pause you right there. I love this idea of this no plan B, right? No, this is what we're doing. So I don't know if you know this. I don't know if we've talked about this, but I, like you, ended up in predominantly white schools growing up until about, I guess it was the seventh grade or so. We grew up in a small suburb south of Houston. And I would say it was fairly mixed, but it was very segregated. And so even though my school was mixed, when you'd go home, neighborhoods were very segregated. So I don't think I ever had the experience of ever going to a predominantly Black school at any point in my education. But when I went to middle school and then high school, it was overwhelmingly white. And I agree with you. Once you get comfortable with something, like like you said, not being the, not having a lot of people who look like you around, it just stops even being a thing for you. You're just like, okay, it just, it's almost like normal that you would be one of only a few or the only one. And you don't even think about it until somebody else brings it to your attention. Correct. I totally agree. Yeah. So it's like, okay, that was weird. And so I, like you, school came pretty easily for me. I don't think I'm a genius either. I'm pretty smart. And I was very good in math and science. In fact, in my junior and senior years, I was taking AP classes. And my senior year, I was probably in definitely in AP English. I loved English, but I was in physics two, chem two, and bio two. And then I was in calculus. So, you know, this is my senior year. Other kids are like kick back, they're doing office things. And, but unlike you, you know, my mom pushed right? She wanted you to do the best you could at everything you did and not giving full effort. Just, you know, why would you, my mom was like, why would you not give your best? Give it your all. And I think at least in part for me, I ended up at UT on a full ride, but I wasn't committed to that journey. I really wanted to major in English. That was really like, I loved English and I wanted to major in English, But I was being, I felt this pressure and it could have been very much self-imposed, but I felt this pressure to do that because my uncle was an electrical engineer. And then, so, you know, we had that family kind of thing. So I didn't have a plan B either. But if you listen to my first podcast, you know, I flunked out. Well, I didn't flunk out, but I withdrew from UT. It's like, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. And I was kind of wandering around for a while. So I am so impressed with your, like, there is no plan B this is what we're doing because I've got goals. I have things that I want and need to accomplish. And this seems like a sure path. So we're going to make it happen. 
Yes. To go back a little bit as well, growing up, I grew up in a household where my father was very dominant. And to me, it was dominant, not in a good way. And at times with my mom, it definitely was some emotional abuse. And on, I would say, very rare occasions, but it has happened. It was some physical abuse as well. So I remember seeing that. And I remember even as a child, once, you know, being frightened of of certain, a fight or something like that, begging my mom to leave. But at a young age, not realizing she has six kids and she was a nurse, but how could she take care of six kids? Right. So she couldn't, she didn't have that option to leave. And so in my mind, it was devastating for me to see her not have that option. And so in my mind, I always wanted that option. And for me, the only way I could have that option was to become, in my mind, an aeronautical engineer. I mean, I did sit back and I was looking like, and I, I looked at all the you know, I was like, okay, I don't want to be a doctor. I went with my mom to like a child, follow your, your parent to school. And I went with her and she was a nurse and she swore up and down. I was going to be a nurse. But in my mind, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so I, I was like, okay, well, what else can I do? And so I started looking, I was like, okay, I can be an engineer. So then I looked at all the different types of engineer and I really liked math. So I was like, Ooh, aeronautical has a lot of math and it's really cool. And then Mae Jameson, I was looking at her too, like, ooh, I think also, I mean, I was smart, but I think I loved the the joy or sort of like being maybe some of the few, especially being a Black woman that could succeed. And I saw her and I was like, yeah, I like that. So it, it probably was a little bit of ego as well, I think. And to say like, nah, I'm an aerospace engineer, to be honest, I think, even though if you know me, most people don't know where I work because I don't share it, especially if we're playing tennis. It's not like I'm like, hey, I'm an aerospace engineer. I don't do that ever. So it probably took you a while to know where I work because I don't. Not that I'm ashamed, but yeah, you would share some of the modeling stuff you were doing. And I was like, oh, this sister's like super, super deep. Oh my gosh. So I was just, yeah. once you started sharing some of the things you were working on and the testing process, I was just so blown away because you're right. It's not an in your face kind of thing. You do though, I will tell you, you do carry yourself with an incredible air of confidence. There's no arrogance there. It's just a a really nice self-assuredness that I've always really liked about you. Thanks. You know, when we try to pressure you, not so much me, but when the guys would try to pressure you to like play tournaments and stuff, you say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) You know, me, I would be like waffling and well, maybe you're like, nope, not doing that. Y'all could ask me a thousand times. My no is a no. And I just love that about you. It's like, I'm not ready. I'm not doing it. Yes, yes. And I think that is part of, you know, growing up always, like as a child, I couldn't choose my parents. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love them. But in the difficult times, it was like, okay, I have to deal with it. So as an adult, I'm like, listen, there is, I don't do anything. I mean, within reason, there's some stuff, you know, you have to do. But outside, I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) So (laughs) I think that comes from that as well, as being a child and not being able to make decisions. Then sometimes I'd be like, nope. But As you can see, I try to be lenient too, but I think that's where that comes from. Well, I love it. I love it. All right. So you graduated from Ohio State. Yes. Yes. So I actually, as soon as I graduated, my sister got a, this is my sister, Angie, who I'm very close with. She got a job in Atlanta. So I had just graduated. And although I didn't have a job, you, she was not leaving me in Columbus, Ohio when she went to Atlanta. So I packed up with her, went right on to Atlanta, didn't have job first. And the funny thing, 
one of my college friends too was like, y'all are not leaving me. I'm going with y'all. So it was three of us packed up and my sister's, the, the, her company paid for us to go. And we told them to like, uh, can you stop at three different places? Because all I had was my bedroom furniture and so did my friend. So we moved to Atlanta and with my sister and I was there for like eight months and I had just small jobs here and there, right? And a job came up, it was with Lockheed Martin. And I had reached out to my college advisor for a reference. He was a really cool guy. And he's one of the reasons why I made it through my degree, I believe as well. So when I reached out to him, he said, yes, I'll do a reference, but I also want you to come home and interview for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I had been out of school, I want to say eight months now. So I said, okay. So I come home and I interview for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That's in Dayton, Ohio. And I get the job. Okay. So the dilemma was, do I leave Atlanta to go with my sister and my friend? And we are kicking it, kicking it. We've never kicked it like this before because we're from Columbus, Ohio. So do I leave all that where sunshine, it's like we're at a vacation every single day to Dayton, Ohio. Right. So. I had to make the wise decision. I didn't have any jobs in my field at the time. So I had to move back to Dayton, Ohio, because it would be very dumb. This would be my first aerospace engineering position. So this is what you got to do. Did I cry? Of course I did. But I packed up my little bedroom furniture, what have you, and headed back to Dayton, Ohio. So I was in Dayton, Ohio for three and a half years. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to talk down about my state or what have you, but okay, please someone get me out of here. (laughs) So after three and a half years, oh, I was going for job fairs and stuff where I was at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I went to um, National Society of Black Engineers and there were a couple other job fairs that I went to. And at this time, I was passing out my resume and all that. So I want to say maybe two or three months later, I get a phone call and they actually say, this is such and such from NASA and we got your resume. We're not really sure how we got it, but we got your resume and we have an opening in the thermal branch. Okay, this is me being a little, I don't know what was going on with me, but I didn't want to work in the thermal branch. What's the thermal branch, Sheila? I don't okay, sorry, sorry. So it's more thermal where they like predict like different temperatures that your instrument will see. Like sometimes like instruments, they are very sensitive to heat. Say if we get too close to the sun or if we're going in orbit around the sun, there's times where the instrument will get hotter and then they'll, sometimes they'll get cold. And there's different materials that will move differently with different temperatures. Okay. All the optics, let's say all the mirrors have to be specially aligned. And if you're given a specific temperature range, they could go out of line. So the thermal branch, I'm sure they do a lot more. First, they make sure we this instrument survives different temperatures, but they also provide temperatures on different locations in orbit. Okay. That's my take. And different materials behave differently. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that that branch does. But in college and stuff, I didn't like that. So I was like, no, that's okay. Like a fool. Like, I don't know. But okay. Luckily, though, they called me back. I I can't remember the time duration. It wasn't very long. Let's just say within that month, they called me back with another position. And this position was in structural analysis, which that is what I want to do. That was the class in college where I was like, ooh, if I could do this, like I worked with one of the professors and did like a little side 
design plan with doing structural analysis. So I really like that, right? And so they called me back. So I was like, yes. Well, first, they only wanted to offer me a little, little, little bit of money. And I'm like, well, how am I going to survive in the D.C. area with that little? So I had to do some negotiating and it worked. And not that I was rich, but I at least negotiated where I could feel comfortable because now I'm going to be in a whole nother state without any family or friends. Right. So after talking with them back and forth, I agreed. I accepted a job before I had even stepped foot in Maryland, D.C., anywhere. I was still in Dayton, Ohio. And I was like, yes, I'm coming. I'm coming. So I got here. It was actually, it was Valentine's Day of the year 2000. And everything just worked out really just seamless, just beautiful. I loved my branch. That's um, the group of people that I work with. I love my boss, which I call my branch head. I'm still in the same branch. I'm still like all my coworkers are real cool. That was one thing at working at Wright-Patterson. They weren't as welcoming, we'll say. Okay. And it's because Dayton, Ohio is not, I can say it's diverse, but I don't think a lot of us do very well, I believe. Yeah. I love you're making that point. Yeah, it's a rough demographic, we'll say. I mean, you know, it's just a little... So I wasn't accepted as easily in Dayton, Ohio, as I was coming to Maryland. And maybe that's just by chance. I'm not sure. But like in Wright-Patterson, like I actually had someone that was assigned to train me and they refused. Wow. I don't know why. Maybe he was just a jerk. I'm not sure. I don't know if it was because I was a woman. It was because I was like, I really don't know. And I can't really focus why. I just know what happened. Exactly. So, you know, it, it wasn't a very friendly environment. So to leave there, I was like, okay, I'm out. So once I got here at NASA, like it's really been, I mean, I've had some, some issues, I think with racism and stuff, luckily outside of my branch that I work with, but so far, like I really enjoyed it. And yeah, I think I'll probably be doing this probably for the rest of my life. I think. Okay. So talk to us about a typical day for Sheila at NASA. Okay. When I say structural analysis, sometimes that's a a large category. So I'll say a little bit more specifically what I do. So let's say the scientists come up with an idea, an idea where, listen, the scientists are smart on a whole nother level. I'm not that smart. So they come up with this plan, like they're going way out to Jupiter, what have you, and they give you all these requirements of what they need. Okay. So then the mechanical team, comes up with a design to meet the needs of the scientists, okay? Once the mechanical team comes up with this design, and this is like all on computers, like, okay, it's going to be, let's just, I'm going to keep it simple for you. Let's just say, okay, it's going to be a box. It's going to be this size and it's going to have three wheels on it. Okay, let's just say it like that. And so what I do, they give me this design and so I can import it into my software. So although they said, okay, Sheila, we got a big box and three wheels. I take it, I build like a mathematical model. With this mathematical model that I build, I can tell you like, okay, listen, those three wheels aren't enough. We need five wheels. That cardboard box or that box that you got, okay, we can't make it out of aluminum. It has to be titanium. It's not going to make it. So I'm able to tell them if the design is sufficient or not. And sufficient meaning, okay, when they launch it, is it going to survive? Or when it's launched and it's going around, let's say the sun, and it has, it's getting closer to the sun and away from the sun, do all the optics stay aligned perfectly? So that's just some of the things that I do. 
So I create mathematical models so that I can assess the design before it's built. And then once it starts being built, we don't build the whole thing at once. We'll build it in little pieces at a time. So this is probably the part that you'll hear me talking about where we've tested like one part where I like go. And so when we test it, I've already already given predictions on how it's going to respond. But this is all on my computer. This is not me touching anything. This is all on my computer. So when it's set up on that test facility, I'm like crossing my fingers, holding my breath, like, please, please, like respond the way I predicted, right? And I'm a knock on wood because so far, my results have been matching these tests so well. Where a couple of times, and I, I'm shocked myself. So I, you know, I think I'm decent, but listen, it comes a little bit of luck because if I show you one of these models, like for real, it's like millions of little pieces in it. So how that all comes together, I mean, I, what I'm doing, I'm thinking about it, but when my results match that test, it's the best feeling. And you can see them looking at me like, dang, like you predicted that? I was like, looky here, looky here. So it's been a couple of times where we got test results and they pause and they look at me like, because a lot of people, their results, you know, they'll be in the ballpark or so. And I'm sure there's others that are good, but listen. You've been crushing it. I'm probably jinxing myself. I, yeah, I was like, ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is like, this process goes over years and years. I'm usually on a program for maybe like five or six years or so. Wow. So when we actually get to the point where we're building and testing, it's been years in the work. So, you know, once I'm showing some results, I'm like, ooh, look at my model. It's just excitement over just the years of work and, you know, many late nights and all that. And do you see your progress like actually come into something? You're like, oh my gosh. And then to actually see the whole thing. I actually went to my first launch. It was September of 2019. It was the best experience that I had working. And I wish I could have took all my families and friends to witness it because it was absolutely beautiful. I bet. So yeah, so my actual day, it depends on what step I'm in. For the most part, I'm building my models because they can take months or what have you to build my 3D mathematical models. But then we have different reviews that are going on as well. So in the beginning, you'll have a review where I have to present my results in front of, they fly experts in, which is like, if you ever hear me say I had a review today, I'm probably a little off or a little mad or a little anxious or in some type of funky mood because it's so stressful because it's like all these experts drilling you like, well, what about this? What about that? And all that. So it's very stressful, what have you. But if I'm not preparing for a review, I'm building a model or I'm presenting results and no design is perfect the first time. And so sometimes I just want to tell them like, like, okay, make this part thicker or something like that. But at the same time, let's say the systems engineer, which is kind of like at the top that like kind of, you know, pull us all together. Like there's electrical and all that. Even though I want to make something maybe bigger and heavier, they have to fight because we can only weigh so much. The more we weigh, the harder it is for us to launch and the more expensive it is. So it's not as easy like, well, just make it bigger, just make it bigger, thicker or something like that. They'll be like, nope, you're too heavy. So what are you going to do now? I'm like, well, how do you want me to fix this? So it's, it's always some give and pull like that. Right, right. Okay, so we touched on this idea of being one of only a few or the only one. At the same time, there's this idea that representation matters. And you mentioned about Dr. Mae Jameson and how her being a representative for you of the possible was inspirational for you and actually gave you some insight about what art of the possible actually was. 
So what ideas do you have, recognizing that there are not very many of you, what ideas do you have for creating more of a pipeline for children of color to move into these STEM occupations? I've been thinking about that and it's a little hard for me to grasp like the whole, my mind or put my mind around it because it's like, okay, I try to make myself visible and let them see. And, you know, it's me who works at NASA, like, and I'm not like a super geek, not not that it's wrong with anyone being a super geek or what have you, but I think I told that line between, like, sometimes I might think, oh, it's not cool and all that. Not that I'm the coolest, but, you know. You're pretty cool, Sheila. You're pretty cool. (laughs) You know, I'm okay, right? So I try to just live my life and make myself present. Um, even if it's like with my niece and her friends and on Facebook, I'll even share articles and stuff like that. But the kind of tough side is that I won't say tough. I won't say tough, but naturally I'm an introvert. So I'm not all out there. I mean, what you my friend and you may not know that because I'm with you like, yeah, yeah, it'll have you. But if I don't know you, I'm really an introvert. So it's hard to push myself out there as well. So like when you first asked me about the podcast, I'm like, oh, Katrina, now listen. But I always sit back and I do it. Yes, I do. I, I do it. You definitely did. You definitely did. But I'm glad you decided to. So what do you think the biggest challenge is, though? I think a little bit it is the the fear that they can't do it. Yeah. It's the fear of the unknown. This is just my personal opinions. You don't see anyone do it. Like maybe your parents were not engineers or, you know, or maybe your parents didn't do that great in school. And sometimes I think maybe if not parents and others may feed into, well, I'm not good at math. And I would say, I mean, even if you weren't good the first time, don't give up on it. Like maybe it just takes you a little longer to get it, which is okay. You don't have to get it instantly, but don't give up on it just because you didn't understand or initially it was difficult. And if it takes you a little bit more time, that's okay too. You don't have to get it, you know, instantly. Now I share that thought or that thinking with my niece who is 16 and She's doing very well in school and in math and stuff like that. But the initial, she liked math, but sometimes she would get discouraged because she didn't get something as quickly as her friends. And which I told her, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't get it very instantly like that either. But do you get it? After a while, do you get it? What have you? So, yeah, I think it's just showing them that if I did it, my parents weren't wealthy. They weren't educated either. I went to public schools. I didn't even go to this big private school, what have you. If I can do it, then you can do it too. I just try to be out there as much as I can. But yeah, it's hard because I don't know. I don't know how to reach a lot, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, hopefully there will be a few who'll listen and share and they'll get to know you better. Yes. I think you touched on a couple of things that are really important to to highlight. One is this idea of Part of the reason that representation is so important is because you have the naysayers who say things can't be done and then somebody does it and it's like, oh, okay. And the thing that sort of immediately popped to mind was the four minute mile. You know, that was a barrier forever. And everybody said, nobody can ever run a four minute mile. Then the first person broke the four minute mile barrier and then everybody's running, you know, less than four minute miles because there's this idea of, Oh, it can actually be done. 
And like you were saying, as early as second grade, well, if they can have it, I can have it too. If they can do it, I can do it too. And I think if we can broaden our perception of what representation actually looks like, sure, it is great to see other people of color doing phenomenal and amazing things. But I liked your point early about moving outside of your bubble and not limiting yourself to your bubble or your community. Like that's not going to be the standard bearer necessarily for me. I have now this expanded horizon and I get to actually choose like what my sphere of reality contains based on what I decide it contains, not what somebody else imposes on me. Exactly. So I love that idea too. It's like, yeah, it's great to see other Black women doing amazing things. And I can just see anybody doing anything and say, you know what? If they can do it, I can do it too. Yeah. So that was even my mentality going into college and stuff like that. I would be in a whole auditorium, like, and it would be me sometimes. I'd be looking like, Okay. Like I can even remember going to a study group, like, cause I'm like, okay, this is college. Oh, this is going to be super hard, super hard. And I got there a little late and it was a group of Caucasian males and it was an engineering class, whatever. So they're working, working, working. And I got there a little late and I get the answer to the problem, right? While they were still working it. So we got the answer in the back. I'm like, so this is it right here, whatever. They did not want to listen to me. So of course that was the last time I did that study group. So my theory is like, Find the study group where you aren't the smartest. You want to learn from some other people. So I did that in college too. Like, listen, if I'm the smartest in the study group, guess what? I need another study group. (laughs) And maybe that's a little selfish, but I'm like, y'all not going to help me. (laughs) Right. No, that's not selfish. And that is very much aligned with my mom's philosophy. My mom was like, associate yourself, align yourself with people who you can learn from. Exactly. Who can actually help you be better. Why would you want to be in a group of people who are actually a drag on you? And I do think that that can be a challenge in the Black community in particular because, you know, we get accused of crab in a bucket syndrome. Yes. But at the same time, If you don't have things in common with people and you're just limiting it to the superficial thing of the color of my skin, is that really real? You know, it's like, oh, just you need to be more real. Well, is that really real though? Is it? Right, right. That reminds me of another story too. When I was at Ohio State, of course, I would tell other, you know, students, and these would be Black ones too, what my major was. And they would kind of be like, ugh, like, well, everyone changes their major once they're, you know, past a freshman because they can't do it. And so it was sad because I also got, I mean, there was, not that I needed praise now, because now I'm like a tunnel vision, like this is what I'm going to do. But it was sad how even some people that look like me would challenge what I was doing. And like in a negative way, I can remember being studying in the Black Studies Library and the guy telling me, you're not going to graduate in that major. I was like, what kind of foolishness is that? So it's, it's kind of sad. So it's like, you have to be your own motivator, but it's, that's, that's often hard sometimes, you know? It can be. So that's what I was saying. It's kind of hard to tell, to tell kids like, okay, well, this is not going to be an easy road. Right. It's not. I mean, sometimes you don't have support from your own people sometimes. And that sense of community is just, personally, I'm always rooting for everybody Black. I love saying that. I'm rooting for all of us. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm going to live and let live. So I'm not going to necessarily be all engaged in whatever your situation or circumstance is. And, you know, I feel like it's getting better. I do. And, and we don't often talk about the challenges that we have within 
And I had a conversation with a sister friend over the weekend, the one I was telling you about where the episode didn't tape. Yes. And that part of it, I thought was pretty profound. And I do hope that there will be an opportunity for those ideas to come forward about how important it is for us to really be more champions of one another. Yes. One comment that she made about that, though, that I really appreciated is, and there's a little quip about this, you know, hurt people hurt people. And so there's so much trauma in our community that sometimes we unknowingly inflict that trauma on one another. And so that, I think, informs my desire to support us in being more conscious, being more intentional, and paying more attention on purpose to how we're showing up, how we're treating ourselves, how we're treating others, and just how we're moving through life so that we're doing it in a way that honors the highest and greatest good in ourselves and in others. Yes. That really is, I think, what I feel like is my calling. Because, you know, I can geek out and nerd out and people don't know that, you know, I have a doctorate and things like that. Because like you, you know, you don't just wear that stuff. You just show up and live your life and you like to just have a good time. Some of our best times were at City Winery, right? We're sitting there having a glass of wine, listening to live music. I just love that. Exactly. So it's not about, you know, I think people have an idea about how, quote, smart people are. But we're all just people. We all start out exactly the same way. And we all have different circumstances and challenges that we have to move through that shape us and influence who we are and and how we filter our experiences. So I just am so impressed with you. Thank you. So tell me, Sheila, what's bringing you joy these days? Some of the purest joy in my life, I think, is giving back to my mom. So as a child, seeing her growing up and Oftentimes it was a tough environment. And I think now that I'm able to give her just about whatever she wants and needs, which, okay, she's not going to ask for much, but to just do that. And it's little things like my mom is now 87 now. And this is some years ago, but we didn't realize that she had never had a birthday party. So my mom at a very young age, she was adopted as well. And so we, I mean, you were a kid, we only were kind of selfish. So we only think about ourselves and our parties. So you don't really go back and think about the lives of your parents often, right? Right. So when we were just talking to her, she was like, you know, I never had a birthday party. So me and my sister were like, listen, we're about to throw mommy a birthday party, right? And so she was turning 79. And at first we were thinking like, okay, well, let's wait till 80. We were like, no. We're going to do it at 79. So I love it. Yes. So yeah, we threw a really big party and we cared and invited all her friends and it was just absolutely beautiful. So what brings me pure joy is giving back to my mom. One other story. And now we have to be careful. Like when we ask her what she wants, because she was like, I never stayed in the cabin. So then me and my sister are like, okay. So it was like Thanksgiving right before COVID. We were like, we are going to a cabin. So it's just anything she wants that we're going to make it happen. So we're going to try to get her on a cruise ship, but she's never been on a cruise. So yes, anything that can make my mom so happy, that's what I do. That's my pure joy. My next joy, actually, and my sisters and my nieces here as well, but the love I have for my siblings and my nieces, pure joy as well. See, we have so much in common on that front. I mean, those would have been my answers almost to a T. Like, Anything that puts a smile on my mom's face and just the deepened connection that I have with my sister and 
just the wonder that I have from my niece, Sierra. I mean, that that little chick is such an inspiration. And to, to see her evolving into this incredible woman, I mean, the world is just in for such a treat. How old is your niece? She is 16. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So what is she saying she wants to do? We were talking about that. We talked about it a lot. She was thinking maybe she wants to be a doctor, but she's also thinking like, okay, well, I kind of want a life. So I don't know if I really want to be a doctor. So she was like, maybe I'll I'll be a physician assistant. Like I could be close, but still be able to go home. So she's all over it right now. So, but she's taking all the AP courses and all of that. She just had her first AP um, final or exam like last week. So that was her first one ever. She's a sophomore now. Yeah. She's prepared in a way that she'll be able to make a decision on what she, whatever she wants to do. I think she'll be successful at it. I think she's stressing out about trying to decide exactly what she wants to do. And I'm like, well, it's kind of hard. And I was like, but you are already showing that you're a good student. You're going to study or what have you. So you'll be good at whatever you do. So just try to relax, but it's hard to tell a 16 year old that, but I think she's stressing about it a lot, but like, whatever you decide to do, you'll be great at it. Yeah, I'm noticing that the younger people seem to have a lot more self-imposed pressure on themselves to do well. I see my niece struggling with that. What do you think that comes from? I think with them, they have more of the social media, I think, because they're seeing all the other, like some other kids like, oh, well, they got into Harvard, they got into here. They're always, I think, comparing themselves to others in a way that we didn't have to. We weren't, we didn't have that all in your face. I mean, we probably knew about you know, the few geniuses or quote, if we had any at our school and the next school over, but that was it. But they see all the geniuses and all, I mean, you know, in different countries and worlds, I guess. That's a great point. And I think they compare themselves to that. And I, I'm trying to get her to not do that as much and just have her own self greatness. But it's a little hard because I don't, I didn't grow up that way. So yes, it's kind of hard to correct. That's a great insight. I hadn't even thought about the comparison aspect of it. Because you're right, it's it's a human, natural human thing to sort of compare ourselves to others. Right. And the scale was so much smaller when we didn't have internet when we were growing up. But you're right now, it's like I'm comparing myself to everybody in the world. Mm-hmm. All right, Sheila. So as we bring our time to a close, what words of advice or wisdom would you have for young aspiring scientists who may be feeling a little bit discouraged on their journey? I would say... If it was one word, I think the most important word to me was patience. It's like you have to have patience the whole way through. It's like, okay, you're not going to have that degree, but tomorrow, I mean, you know, or maybe the first time you took that advanced chemistry class, you didn't do as great as you wanted to, but just give yourself the patience to be like, okay, I can do this. Like, even if I got to take it again, I can do this. So I would think patience is like the biggest thing because. There was a couple of times where I cried at college. I, I want to say a good, I don't know, five times I broke down. was like, ooh, this is hard. But I just sat down and was like, okay, you just have to give your time the patience to learn. And I, I think that was important to me. So I would say patience. I think that is so spot on and probably more profound than you realize in our era of instant gratification. Yes. Where we expect everything immediately. And so this idea of really just, you just gave me a word for myself because I do not have that virtue. I'm one who's very hard on myself. And if I don't get something right away, then I'm frustrated. And it's like, that's it. I quit. I'm no good at this. 
that's the same with me, right? Even if we go back to even with tennis, like if I don't get this forehand, like uh, if I don't get this serve, it's like, so you just have to allow, I mean, and I'm not that great. I'm, you know, I'm still practicing it myself, but if we just give ourselves that patience to really take time and learn, sometimes we don't learn instantly, but that's okay. Because if we give ourselves that time, we will learn eventually. I love that. I love that. And I think that's just a really perfect way to end our segment today. I appreciate your patience with my request and actually agreeing to come on the podcast. I hope it wasn't too torturous for you. It was not bad. It wasn't so bad. I just had to like get my mind around it. Like, okay, I'm going to do this. So no, but thanks for inviting me. And thanks for listening to my story too. No, your story is very inspirational. It's educational. And I do think that, you know, our lives are great beacons for others. And so I appreciate your willingness to do that. I appreciate your willingness to be here. And I will echo your sentiments to the listeners. Give yourself great patience. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with others. Be patient with your journey. And trust that all things are working for your highest and greatest good, always and in all ways. So until next week, continue to be joyfully you, full of joy, fully you. A little